Abraham Wald was a brilliant mathematician and part of the American military's classified statistical research group during World War II. The military, they brought this group many questions seeking ways to be more efficient and effective in the production of military equipment and in combat. And one of the questions brought to Wald and his group was how to better armor the Air Force planes so that fewer of them would be shot down and lost. They kept track of the bullet holes in the planes that returned, and they asked his group to analyze uh, those bullet holes to decide where they needed to put more armor on the planes. And this was a pressing question because the planes would be vulnerable if they didn't have enough armor, but they'd also be vulnerable if they added too much and slowed down the planes in aerial battle. And so here's a picture representing the, the pattern of bullet holes in the planes that were returning from combat. And the military, they brought this information to Wald, and they asked him, how much armor should we add to the planes to prevent this damage? Guess how much Wald told them to add? Nothing. Nothing. He said, don't, don't add any armor to where the planes show damage. And his reasoning was simple. These bullet holes were, where, uh, were in the planes that were surviving. See, Wald realized he was being asked to solve the wrong problem. The returning planes didn't need more armor where they'd been shot. It was the areas without damage in the nose and engines and mid-body that they needed to reinforce because the planes getting hit there were the ones that were being destroyed. There's a key principle from that story, and that is that identifying the right problem is critical to finding the right solution. Identifying the right problem is critical to finding the right solution. Last week we mentioned that there is something clearly wrong with this world and with humanity. And many people have proposed solutions. More education, more financial equality, more government control, more religion, more traditional values. Before we try and, and figure out how to best address the obvious brokenness in the world, we need to be crystal clear. What is the root problem that we're addressing so let me give you the big idea of our message up front. The heart of our problem is a worship problem in our heart. The heart of humanity's problem is a worship problem in our hearts. And to see that in the text, we're going to break it into two main points. We're going to look at the certainty of worship and the consequences of idolatry. If you're taking notes, it's the certainty of worship and the consequences of idolatry. For our first main point, remember that last week we started a section of Romans aimed at explaining how all of humanity is universally guilty before God and without excuse for our sins. The reason we're all without excuse is twofold. First, all of creation clearly reveals a glorious, eternal, and all-powerful God that created us, to whom we owe everything. That's where we spent most of our time last week. But second, we briefly looked at how humanity, how humanity has not glorified God or given him thanks, but in, instead we've exchanged his glory to worship idols. This is where we're going to drop back in to Paul's flow of thought. Verses 21 through 23, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Three observations here. We were made to worship God. We see this alluded to in verse 21, and then it's said more explicitly in verse 25. What is worship? 
Well, for many, when they think of worship, they just think of bowing in prayer or singing in church. But worship is far more broad than that. Worship is whatever we give supreme worth in our lives. When you think of worship, you think, what is worthy of your whole life? It's the people, things, or positions that you seek your satisfaction, security, or significance from. It's what your heart puts your hope in and builds your identity on. And that leads to our second observation, which is that worship takes place internally. This is implied in verse 21, where the result of not worshiping God is experienced inwardly in people's minds and heart. Worship, of course, involves our external behavior, but it never starts there. It always begins and flows from our heart, and it's shown by our deepest desires and motivations. This connects to our third and primary observation, worship is a certainty. Worship is a certainty. All human beings are worshipers. It doesn't matter if you're religious or anti-religious. It doesn't matter if you're in church or not at church. All human beings are worshipers, and all human beings are always worshiping. Worship is not like a, a light switch that you flip on and off when you feel like it. Worship is to our soul what breathing is to our bodies. We do it all the time. We need to do it, even though we usually aren't conscious of the process. We see this in verses 23 through 23, because when people stopped worshiping God, they didn't stop worshiping. They didn't cease to worship. They just began to worship idols. Even more definitively, verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what had been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Worship is inevitable. It's not a, a possibility for human beings like you and me. Worship is a certainty. The question then is not, do you worship? It's, what do you worship? And in the final analysis, there are only two options. You either worship the creator or you worship a created thing. You either worship God or you worship an idol. Now, as, as we saw last week, an idol is not limited to a statue. Biblically, an idol can be anything in creation, literally anything that God has made. And so I, I just threw together a brief sample with some common idols and then some also some extreme ones, some eccentric ones. So we have on there appearance or health, fitness. That's a, that's a common idol that people can have. But did you know that the Iowa Hawkeyes can be an idol? Now, I checked. I wasn't sure, but being an Iowa State fan, that can be an idol. That can be an idol, too. Um, Trump or Biden, I put that on there. We have the elections coming up. Politics can be an idol. Political figures can be an idol. Now, since we live on the South Side, I had to include bocce ball and uh, classic frozen custard. Those South Side staples, they're wonderful, but you got to watch out. They can, be, they can become idols, too. Anything can become an idol. Anything in God's creation. And I want you to notice that I, I call these surface idols. Now, that's not original to me. Now, many writers and preachers have pointed out a distinction between the people, things, goals, and positions we desire, and then what lies underneath them. This is sometimes referred to as source idols. And a source idol explains why would anyone make an idol out of any, any of those things in the first place? And the reason is because we think that some aspect of God's creation can give us satisfaction, security, 
or significance. There are other ways that people have categorized source idols, but this one has been very helpful for me. The three S's. Everyone wants satisfaction in life. We want security in life, and we want significance in life. Now, two people, they could both make an idol out of the same thing. So out of the same surface idol. So let's say a career. Many people make an idol out of their career. But you can do that for completely different reasons. One person might do it because they want to get rich. Not because they want to impress others or, or buy tons of things, but because money gives them a sense of security. Money gives them a sense of control over their life. Now, another person, they might make an idol out of their career because they want to be successful and feel important and respected. Do, do you see the distinction there? It's the same idol on the surface, but very different reasons that they're pursuing it. One is for the idol of security, the source idol of security, the other for significance. And this is what happens all the time in idolatry. What happens so often in idolatry is not that we worship things that are inherently bad, even bad for us, but we take good things like a career and we turn them into an ultimate thing. As many have have said, we take good things and we make them a God thing. The word desires in verse 24, where God gave people over to their desires, it's the Greek word epithemia, and it means a super passion. An all-consuming passion. In some context, it's the, it's the idea of desiring something too much. Not because it's bad, but it's an inordinate desire. It's too strong. And so as human beings, you have to realize our idols often are good things. Did you know that family can be an idol? A family is one of the biggest blessings of God, but we can warp that into an idol. Even church and the Bible itself can be turned into an idol. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He, says, he said, you search the scriptures for life, but you're not willing to come to me. In other words, they loved the status that knowledge of God's word gave them, but they didn't love the God that scriptures pointed to. This is what we do by default as fallen human beings. We take good things that God has given to bless us, but we selfishly look to them to do what they're not capable of doing. We put too much weight on them and look for true satisfaction and security and significance from them. I like to think about it this way. Just like our our bodies have needs, like the need for food, our soul also has needs. And God is the only one who can meet the deepest needs of your soul. Imagine that you went days without eating, 10 days, longer than you've ever gone before. You're, You're hungrier than you've ever been in your life. Would it help you if you watched a great movie or binge-watched your favorite Netflix show? And maybe if, if you're like my, my sons, imagine going to Adventureland if you haven't eaten in 10 days. They went uh, this summer, some friends took us, and my kids haven't stopped talking about it. There's a few things in life more exciting currently than when are we going to go back to Adventureland. But if you haven't eaten for 10 days and you love theme parks and you go to Adventureland, is that going to help you? with the the hunger pains in your stomach? You know, it might in the sense that it distracts you for a few seconds and you get an adrenaline rush, but but adventure land, it can't do anything to actually satisfy the legitimate desires for food that your stomach has. And that is exactly what idolatry does to us spiritually. Our souls have a real God-given desire for satisfaction, security, and significance, which only Jesus, the bread of life, can meet. But what we do is we run around day after day chasing 
idols that can only superficially counterfeit what we need or distract us from those longings. This is why the very first of the two commandments deal with our heart and worship. Do you remember what those are? You should have no other God besides me. And then the second one is do not make an idol for yourself to bow down and to serve. Martin Luther famously pointed out that every other sin that we commit, every command we break, begins with breaking those two basic commands in our heart. This is the source of humanity's problems and all the brokenness in the world. And any attempt to understand yourself or humanity that doesn't factor in that we were made to worship God, and yet we worship idols instead, it's always going to come up with an inadequate solution to the problem. The heart of our problem is a worship problem in our hearts. The result, as we're going to see in a moment, are devastating. It's devastating to us and to others. But before we consider that, before we consider the, the seriousness of idolatry, let me ask you a question. What are the default idols of your heart? You see, you can hear a message like this. It's easy to hear the concept of idolatry without actually stopping to reflect on what are your own idols. So consider these questions. What do you want most in life? What could you not live without? What are you most willing to make sacrifices for? Where do you find your identity? Where do you find your ultimate hope? Where do you look for satisfaction, security, and significance? Or in other words, where do you look for joy and peace and purpose? Worship is a certainty. We will worship something, and if it isn't God, then by default, we will worship an idol or idols. And that brings us to our second main point, the consequences of idolatry. This is a heavy section of scripture. In these verses, Paul appears to track the progressive deterioration and corruption that idolatry produces in society. And he does so by explaining a series of of three exchanges that human beings make and then three corresponding responses or consequences that God gives as a result of those exchanges. The first exchange mentioned is is in verse 23, and it's the exchange of the glory of God for idols. Verse 24 explains the result. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. That phrase, delivered over, means to give someone over to the power of another. It can be surrendering someone to jail. It can be surrendering someone to their enemies. And so reaching back to verse 18, this is one of the, the ways God's wrath for sin is revealed on this side of eternity. This fits what we said last week, that the worst thing that God could do for a person or society or nation is to fully give them over to their worship of idols. Now, one example of this on a, a small scale, I work a lot with, with young people. And for many young people, one of their big desires is to get married. And that's a good desire. That's a wonderful desire. But for some people, it becomes their epithemia. It becomes their super desire, the most important desire. And when people are in that position, I usually worry for them. Because when people think that way, 
usually it doesn't lead to actually preparing themselves well to get married. And they usually think the wrong way about who they're wanting to get married to. And for many people in that position, one of the, the worst things that could happen for them is to actually get married. See, it's hard to want to be married. It's hard to long to be married and not to be married. But something that is even worse is when you get married to someone and you long to not be married to them. Like when, when, you, when you despise them and they despise you. And if that idolatry isn't addressed, what tends to happen is it tends to lead to divorce. And then often another marriage with the hope that maybe this person can finally satisfy. And until that idolatry is addressed, then they're going to keep looking for life in the wrong place. The specific result that Paul mentions in verse 24 is God giving people over to the idol of sexual sin. This makes sense because as one commentator put it, the history of the world confirms that idolatry tends to immorality. A false image of God leads to a false understanding of sex. That is so true. A false understanding of God leads to a false understanding of sex. You see this over and over again in the Old Testament. When I was a kid, I used to wonder why the Israelites were so quick to worship the false gods of the nations around them. It's like, guys, God is so much stronger. Like this, what, why would you possibly be drawn to worship these other pathetic gods, these false gods? And then it made so much more sense to me when I, when I learned that the way that you worship many of those false gods was through sexual rituals. See, sexual immorality was a, a major part of the temptation towards immorality for, the, for God's people. Now, why, why is it that idolatry so regularly leads people to sexual immorality? Have you ever thought about that? Why is there such a connection between idolatry and sexual sin? Well, if you reject the glory of God, if you don't find your life in worshiping a glorious God, what's the next most glorious part of his creation? According to Genesis, it's human beings. Men and women stand alone in creation as made in the image of God to, to know him personally and rule over the universe he created with him. When human beings stop worshiping the creator, they worship the creation. And often that ends up being the worship and perversion of God's glorious gift of sex. See, sex was revealed at the climax of God's creation after creating, creating human beings and explaining that this is, this is to, to bond you together. This is for your enjoyment and is to be expressed in the covenant of marriage. We've seen this first exchange described in verse 24 happen on a large scale in our society since the sexual revolution, which promised to liberate people with free love. Sexual freedom, that was the promise. But instead of liberating human beings, Paul says in verse 24 that sexual sin objectifies human beings. The word he uses is degrades. Sexual sin degrades us. Instead of ruling over God's creation, idolatry, what it does is it turns God's creation order upside down. Idolatry flips everything, and it leads to us worshiping the creation and acting like mere animals. Now, an example of this that just jumps out to me is from years ago. There was a song. I'm not going to sing it. Some of you are going to immediately remember it. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Now, that, they just say it over and over again, and it's so obnoxious, but if you take a second to think about it, that is so ugly. That's so ugly. 
You're taking the glorious gift of sex that's, that's meant to unite a man and woman, unite people on, a, on an intimate level in, in the safety and commitment of marriage. And you're saying, eh, sex is really just a biological instinct. That's all it is. It's no different. We're, we're no different than donkeys or dogs in heat. So just, just go for it. That's what, that's what it's saying. If sex isn't holy, it's obvious how easy it is to turn sex into something that is objectifying to others. You know, a more recent example of this is the phrase that is used by many, many young people, and it's, what's your body count? Have you heard that? It's how many sexual partners have you, have you had? And what's so sad about that is that same phrase, it used to refer, and it also refers to how many people have been killed in a shooting. How many people have been killed? What's the body count? What's the damage here? It's so, it's so ironic because sexual immorality has such damaging consequences. If you doubt that, if you doubt the way that, that sexual immorality has corrupted society and even many in the church, just listen to these recent statistics I read about porn use. Today, porn sites receive more website traffic in the U.S. than Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Netflix, Pinterest, and Zoom combined. Close to 6 billion hours of porn were watched on Pornhub in 2019 alone. That's equal to almost 665 centuries of content consumed in one year on just one porn site. Now, my understanding is I think this is the biggest porn site, but other statistics said that there are around 4 million porn websites. That's the estimate. And that's 12% of all Internet websites. Think about how many websites you visited. And you think 12% of all the websites in the world for porn. In 2016, researchers found that almost 50% of respondents reported that over time, they began watching pornography that had previously disinterested or even disgusted them. See, pornography, it, it breaks down your moral compass. It breaks down the, the, the right understanding of sex. One of the most disturbing statistics I saw is that teen is the most common word used in porn titles. Those of you with parents, think about that. It's the most common word that's searched when people are looking for porn. We're sim- we are swimming in a sea of sexual perversion as a culture. And the porn industry is by far the biggest driver of child sex trafficking. And many of, of those addicted to, to child porn, when they began looking at pornography, they never dreamed that they'd eventually be in that place, that they'd be, that they'd be addicted and aroused to that. This issue of sexual sin and its perverting force, it brings up an important question. Is all sin the same? Is all sin the same? Often you'll hear Christians make the claim, all sin is equal before God. Is that true? Is that what the Bible really teaches? Yes and no. Yes and no. All sin is a violation of God's holy law and character. All, of, all sin deserves God's wrath and hell, but not all sin is equally deliberate. The Bible is really clear. Not all sin is equally deliberate. It's not all equally dishonoring to God or destructive to the sinner and society. And so what Paul wants us to understand is that sexual sin is very serious to God whether it's porn, sex before marriage, adultery, or divorce and remarriage without biblical grounds. God takes sexual sin way more seriously than we do. 
1 Corinthians 6.18 highlights the unique harm sexual sin does to us. When Paul says, flee sexual immorality. It's like, run from it. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Keep in mind that Paul, he wrote this during the reign of the Roman Empire, where sexual immorality, it was was expected. It, It was just... The norm. It was often associated with their re- religious rituals and worship as well. And so Paul, he witnessed firsthand the corruption produced in a society given over to sexual immorality. And so that's the first exchange, the first consequence. The second exchange is then given in verse 25, and it's the truth of God exchanged for a lie. Verses 26 through 27 give the result. For this reason... God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. The result, we're told, of this second exchange is same-sex sexual sin, both in women and in men. Historians will tell you that homosexuality was widespread in Rome at the, Paul, uh, at the time that Paul wrote this letter. And so it was common for married men to have, to have, a, and, have and maintain a sexual relationship with a young man as well as their wife. You know, many of the emperors, they had a same-sex partner. It was common for, for men to have long-term sexual uh, relationships with each other. And so this wasn't unique to Paul. He wasn't talking hypothetically. This was the world that he was aware of. Paul, with his language of natural and unnatural, it implies that homosexual sin is an additional rejection of God's creation design and plan to bless humanity for society at large. It's, a, it's an additional step. You see, sexual immorality, it rejects God's design for sex as being a good gift when it's, when it's lovingly enjoyed within marriage. And Jesus defined marriage as between a man and a woman. But homosexual sin, there's an additional rejection society makes of God's design for sex. And that is that from the beginning, it was made for a man and for a woman. Now, I want to call time out here. And I want to just acknowledge what all of you are feeling. And that, that is that these two verses, they're not just considered offensive in our culture, they are considered bigoted and even dangerous. Now, we could have a whole message series on just these two verses, and that's one of the reasons why we've organized the Equip Conference later this month on sex, gender, and the gospel. See, there are so many questions that come up when you get into this topic. And so we wanted to do a deep dive on that, and we wanted to provide a space where people could come and ask questions. We're going to have multiple question and answer times at that conference. And so I'm going to insert a shameless plug here. I hope as many of you as possible will go to that time. You know, parents, you have to be equipped to think about these these things well and teach your kids how beautiful God's design for sex is. You have to show them how beautiful it is when people function the way God desired for marriage. And for those of you who are students, it is so important that you understand what the Bible teaches and you're able to lovingly engage with your friends and with your students, with, uh, with fellow students. And so I hope many of you will, will go to that conference. But even if you don't, 
My point is that there's no way that we can cover, we can cover all of the questions that this passage is going to bring up. So the first thing I want to do is I want to invite your questions. If you have questions about this that we don't address, you can talk to Pastor Schreiner, not me, just kidding. <laughs> you, can talk, you can talk to me as well. I'm happy to talk about any of these things. You can talk with other Christians that you respect in the church. We want to be a place where we can process this together, process what God's word says about life together. The second, the second thing I want to do is I want to insert a couple of observations here that I think are important. The first is that we have to resist the pressure to normalize homosexuality that is steadily increasing in our society. Paul didn't do that in his society where there was similar pressure. Paul didn't do that, and we shouldn't either. Sadly, many churches today are doing that. Now, some do it by embracing the writings of Matthew Vines and others who claim that the Bible doesn't condemn committed and monogamous homosexual marriage, but only uncontrolled or exploitive same-sex relationships. People like that, they seek to reinterpret, reinterpret passages like this one to prove their point. And if you're a Christian, especially in our culture, it's good for you to be aware of those arguments. It's good for you to look at the, the best arguments that are out there and then to look at the biblical counter-arguments. Because if you look into both sides, I'm convinced that you will, become, you will become more and more strong in your belief that the traditional view is the biblical view. It's what God's word says. It is what God has lovingly communicated to us as his creatures. Now, other churches, they normalize same-sex sin not by explicitly changing their position on marriage, but by minimizing the seriousness of sin and the need for all sinners to repent. For example, Andy Stanley, the, f- the famous and very influential pastor of a mega church in Atlanta, he's one of the most recent examples. Within the last two weeks, he had a big conference on this topic of, of sexuality. And uh, when he was there, he invited two men who were legally married to speak. And he praised them for their faith. He praised them for their example. Now, he clarified later that his church holds to Jesus' definition of marriage, but he said some gay people, they find celibacy unsustainable, and so they get married for the same reasons that heterosexual people do, for love and companionship and to have a family. And Stanley, he rightly points out the love that Jesus has for all sinners. But churches like his, they fail to be equally clear that Jesus hates sin. That Jesus says that that we need to repent of our sin before we turn to him for salvation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 shows how unloving this normalization of sin is. Paul, again, writing says, Or do you not know that this unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now notice it says, some of you used to be sexually immoral. Some were idol worshipers. Some were greedy. And then he says, some practice homosexual sin. I want to insert here that's different than same-sex attraction. Paul's saying, no, no, no. There's people you used to practice, practice homosexual sin. And then in verse 11, we get the beautiful statement, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. That, that was your past. See, our sexual sin, heterosexual or homosexual, is not unforgivable, but we must repent of it. 
We have to actually agree with God that it is sin and that it needs to be forgiven of and let him wash us of it. Let him give us a new identity in Christ and, with, and give us a new power through the Holy Spirit to begin to resist that sin. See, I, I want to in, insert here, some of you are thinking to yourself, well, I still struggle with sexual morality, at least with porn. Now, it's similar, I'd say, with, with people who've worried, if I have same-sex attractions, does that mean I'm unrepentant? And all of us, all Christians have desires that we don't want. All of us have desires towards sin. So that's not, that's not the issue. The issue is, are you repentant? Do you agree with God? That is a sin. And are you turning from those and looking to Christ? See, it's unloving to normalize any sin. And that's true of homosexual sin as well. Because when we normalize sin and refuse to agree with what God has said in his word, we do not point people to Jesus. We actually point them towards hell. That's what verse 9 is stressing. Don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice sin, those who identify with unrighteousness, says they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Without genuine repentance of sin, there can be no genuine saving faith in Christ. And so Christians can't normalize sin because that dishonors God and twists his word, which is unloving and deceives everyone that we minister to. Now, that observation, it has to be partnered with the second observation, and that is that Paul was excited to share the gospel with everyone. Remember Romans 1.16? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of, of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Paul knew that not only are all people made in God's image and therefore possess infinite value and intrinsic dignity, he also knew that the gospel was powerful enough to save everyone who would believe. That passage we looked at in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote that before writing Romans. Paul was aware of people who had practiced homosexuality, who had repented and come to faith in Christ, who were walking with Christ. Paul was eager to share the gospel in Rome, one of the centers of sexual sin in the ancient world, and we should be eager to love and to serve and to share the gospel with the people in our life who don't know Jesus. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. We want to be a church with both deep convictions and deep compassion. We want to have deep convictions about what God, God's word says, and we want to have deep compassion for people that matches God's heart. Christ calls us to be a church where everyone is welcome to come and learn about him regardless of their background or current sexual or gender identification. He wants us to be a church where people know that they can come and find people who will genuinely care about them people who will genuinely be their friend, whether or not they ever decide to join us in following Christ. And if that's you this morning, if you, if you identify as LGBT or Q, I'm glad you're here. We're glad you're here. And if any of you have family or friends that identify as LGBT or Q, I hope you feel free to invite them. I hope you feel confident that if they come, they're going to be shown the love of Christ. One other thing needs to be mentioned here before moving on. Men and women with same-sex attractions who have repented and submitted those desires to follow Christ, they can often feel very lonely. All Christians have to surrender their life and their desires to follow Jesus, but for those with same-sex attraction, that means they have to be prepared to live the rest of their lives single and celibate without the blessing of marriage. That's a very real, a very costly Sacrifice that our brothers and sisters in Christ who have unwanted same-sex attraction have to make. And we have members in our church who are in that place. 
That's not just hypothetical. We have people who are there. Now, some of you may experience same-sex lust and have never told that to anyone before. There's people who grow up in the church and they never share that because they know passages like this one in Romans. They know what the Bible teaches. And I want to give an encouragement to any of you who might be in that position and then an exhortation for all of us. The encouragement is that many years ago, I was the first person a very close friend ever told about his lifelong experience of same-sex attraction. I was honored that he was willing to share that with me and I, I reaffirmed my love for him, my support for him, and I told him, God will give you grace. I don't know what the future holds for you, but but God, he will give you grace. I'm going to support you. Well, years later, many years later, the same brother is still predominantly same-sex attracted, but he is married to a wife who is fully aware of those desires and still loves them, and they have a beautiful marriage. They have a family. They have an influential ministry together, and I'm so thankful for the way God has blessed my friend. But at the same time, that's not the way it always plays out. See, I have another friend who before Christ, he gave himself fully over to his same-sex desires. He was extremely promiscuous. And since repenting and coming to Christ, he he doesn't want anything to do with that lifestyle anymore. But those attractions, those desires, they haven't just magically gone away. And he doesn't expect that they will. And yet at the same time, he has a deep joy in Christ. He knows that what he has with the Lord is far better than any romantic or sexual relationship this world could ever offer him. And even though that's true, it's still hard for him at times thinking about the rest of my life, I'm going to be single. And that's one of the many reasons why it is so important for the church to actually be a spiritual family. See, if God calls certain believers not to marry and have a family of their own, he expects the church to treat them as family and to give them the relational love and support we all need. And so if you're married, a question for you to consider is do you look for ways to welcome single people in our church into your family to support them as they, as they seek to trust and follow Christ? I'm so thankful that many of you, you are incredible examples of that. You're incredible examples of coming alongside of others and, and helping meet relational needs. And this is something that we should all seek to grow in for the rest of our lives. Now, for the sake of time, we have to really quickly consider the third exchange in this passage. The exchange is that of natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, which Paul just described. And then he goes on to explain the third consequence in verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind, so they do what is not right. That word corrupt means unfit, It means tested and found useless or or non-functioning. The idea is that the mind can reach a spot where it's no longer capable of basic moral reasoning. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. He says, they have a corrupt mind, so they do not do what is right. This is always the result of persistent idolatry. The Psalms say that, that when people make idols, they become like them. Idols have eyes, and they can't see. They have ears, and they can't hear that they're dead. And when we worship idols, we become less and less human. We're alive physically, but we are spiritually dead. We're unable to see reality. And so you could describe this third consequence or stage as moral insanity. It's where reason is now used to justify all forms of evil. God's design and commands have been rejected to the point that there are no longer any clear moral boundaries. 
And the list in verses 29 through 31, it's, a, it's full of antisocial practices that break down human community. As standards disappear and society disintegrates. Notice that these people, it doesn't say that they are unrighteous, evil, greedy, and wicked. It says they're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're pushing the boundaries of sin. And the rest of the list gives a sampling of that evil. And it's eerie to me how precisely Paul's description of the third stage of corruption corresponds to what we've seen play out in our culture just in my lifetime. Now, the the moral insanity, it reaches its high point in verse 32. It says, although they knew God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Paul shows here that humanity has a sense of moral accountability. We all know that God should punish evil. And yet the result of giving ourselves over to idolatry is that we not only practice evil, we celebrate it as a society, and we encourage others to as well. When people give themselves over to sin, they want others to to join in as well. Now, some of you, you might be tempted to hear a passage like this, a message like this, and and feel a self-righteous sense of pride growing up in you that thinks, I don't give myself over to sexual sin the way most people do. You might hear this and think, I have traditional values. I'm outspoken about the moral decay in our country. And if that's how you hear this message, you need to be careful because next week what Paul is going to do is he's going to, to turn his focus from rampant immorality to religious hypocrisy. And he's going to do that to prove all human beings, all of us, we're guilty before God and without excuse. We deserve God's judgment. And so don't forget Paul's main argument in this passage just because of the parts that are politically incorrect. The primary problem is not sexual immorality. That's just a symptom of a deeper problem. Remember the big idea? The heart of the problem is a worship problem in the heart. That's the problem. Instead of worshiping our eternal and glorious creator, we've exchanged his truth for lies and worship and serve our idols like slaves. Instead of ruling over creation in relationship with God. If the problem is our hearts, then the solution can never be to just change our external behavior. No, we need something to actually break the enslaving grip our idols have on our hearts. And the only way that that can happen as human beings is when we see the greatest exchange that has ever happened in history in the gospel. Have you ever thought about what what an exchange is? So my wife, she loves to shop. She loves deals. And so often she'll, get a, she'll find a good deal and she'll get something even if she's not 100% sure that we'll use it. And so she brings it and she just kind of waits and sometimes she decides, you know what, we don't actually need this. And so she takes it back and she exchanges it to get something else. And when we exchange something, what we do is we, we take something that we have and we decide there's something more valuable that I could get if I give this up. I want, to swap, I want to swap this for something that I view as more valuable. And all of us as human beings, what we have done is exchange the living God for idols that can't give life. That's what we've all done. It's like trading a Thanksgiving feast for fake plastic food. It's like trading a vault filled with solid gold bars for a handful of golden glitter. It, it is preposterous. And, and if we see our idolatry for what it is, then we will become convinced that we deserve God's wrath. If you understand what idolatry really is, you'll be convinced you deserve judgment. But even though God did deliver us over to idols, that's not the end of the story. Romans 8, 32 says, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, grant us everything? When it says he did not spare his own son, that's the same phrase 
used for God gave them over. God gave over the most precious thing to him, his son. He gave him over so that he could be nailed to the cross. Ephesians 5, it attributes this phrase directly to Christ. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. See, Christ, he gave himself willingly out of love for us. And the only way that the idolatry in our hearts can be broken, the only way is if we have a new desire, a greater love. And the gospel is what produces that. When we see that what God was willing to do, the greatest exchange is God himself taking not something he needs, not something inherently valuable, God taking my sin, your sexual sins, our lust, all of our sin, he takes that. He takes it on the cross so that he can give us his righteousness. He can give us a relationship with him. He can make us sons and daughters. And if you know the gospel, if you know Christ, you know that your sins have been forgiven and that you can find real satisfaction and security and significance with Christ. See, Jesus satisfies us. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. He gives us real security. If he's for us, who can be against us? And he gives us real significance because if God was willing to die for you, if God was willing to save you and make you part of his great plan of redemption, then that gives meaning to every moment of your life. Just to close, let me share one, uh, one hymn that I, a pastor shared recently. It's an old, old line from a hymn that says, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how relevant it is to our life how clearly it explains the world around us. And Lord, I, I pray if there's anyone here who's never recognized the idolatry in their heart and their need for a savior, their need for forgiveness, I pray that they would turn to you today. Lord, for the rest of us, God, we are still so prone to idols as your followers. And so help us to see how glorious you are. Help us to see the freedom that the gospel gives even when we fail. And help us to be men and women, God, who genuinely love you who are excited about worshiping you in, in every area of our life and that have a greater love for others, a greater concern for, for others to, to know your saving grace as well. Amen.